This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. The interviews you're about to hear are from today's show and include Ben Eltham talking about federal politics. Then we had Dr. Ben White, who came into the studio to talk about grudging rescue, the history of humanitarian evacuations. And Ben is from the University of Glasgow in Scotland. Then we spoke to Dr. Geordie Silverstein and Mary Tomsick on their article, Marriage Stinks, which is in Overland Journal, and really talks about the history of marriage and that in the context of the current debates we're having around marriage equality. And then finally, we spoke to curator Rebecca Najowski and artist Eric William Carroll about their exhibition, A Field Guide to the Stars, which is currently showing at the Ballarat Municipal Observatory and Museum as part of the Ballarat International Photo Biennale. Yes, 3RRFM. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And as promised, we have... Ben Eltham in the studio to talk federal politics. Ben is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda and he's here right now. Hi, Ben. How's it going? Yeah, good morning, Amy. How are you? Morning. I'm good. It's a beautiful morning out there. Isn't it? Stunning. That's amazing. How did it happen from yesterday, which I actually had to wear a coat to work for the first time in four years that I've been at this place at work and people thought I was unwell. It was a little bit chilly yesterday, but today, beautiful, lovely sunshine. Yeah, it actually reminded me of the weekend, which was beautifully sunny and still cold. You got up to Ballarat, mate? I did. I went to the Rat. It was fabulous. Excellent. Really actually enjoyed it a lot because the buildings are just stunning and the streets are so wide and went to the Botanical Gardens, which was Beautiful, so many significant listed trees there. <laughs> um, there was this tree that looked like it had two legs and it was standing up with its arms spread out. It was amazing to look at. Does that tree have a name? Is it, it's got a um, well, it, it has been dubbed uh, the pant scraper. <laughs> After that wonderful um, tower in Melbourne. <laughs> so I'm just going to go with it. I think it's fabulous. Um, but, yeah, it was just just bliss. How was your weekend, Ben, if we're catching up on the weekend's events? Probably not quite as blissful as that. But, no, But, you know, I got a close. substantial amount of housework done. So oh, wow. I'm claiming that as a win. <laughs> that is a victory, isn't it? No, I got into the garden on Sunday. That was Aww. very nice. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, and I did mention um, to everyone that we still got the Radiothon decos up. So uh, it's it's still very festive in here and every time I uh, move my hand around I get caught on a cobweb and have beautiful cobwebs on my jacket here. So oh, a the ambiance, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, thanks to everyone for subscribing last week. It's it, fun. You know, it really, we get a real kick out of it and it means a lot to hear people write in and call in and say that they like what we do. Yeah, and we... Um, it's still going, really. Radiothon has ended, but it's pay-up period now for a month. And if you do call in now or subscribe um, via the web, you can actually still go in the running for prizes. Uh, so they're drawn on the 21st of September. You've got time. So please do. If you missed out, if you somehow missed the Radiothon buzz, uh, it's not too late to jump on the train. Yeah, it's not too late. And no. the prizes are pretty awesome. So, you know, you want to be yeah. in it to win it. They are, they're really cool. Like a Cinema Nova Gold Pass. Films for a year with a double pass. Now, that is a dream prize. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. Big Sound Festival. I mean, I'm not sure how that's going to work because Big Sound's on like in a week. But um, 
that's a really good festival. I was there last year, and if you're interested in the music industry, like yeah. that is by far the best industry conference to go and meet producers, managers, label people. It's a really interesting conference. Yeah, well, there you go. If you're a band artist or DJ, that's one of those cool prizes that might be relevant to you. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm going to stop plugging for a moment, and let's get to federal politics because, well, there's just so much uh, citizenship craziness happening then that I feel like we need to jump on board that train and update people because pretty much every day another MP you know has a cloud over them as to whether they are a citizen of another country unbeknownst to them that's right Um, it seems to be spreading and spreading like some kind of citizenship virus Uh, so Nick Xenophon yeah. has been pulled into speculation about it. So has the Liberal MP and Sudmalis. Fiona uh, Nash. Fiona Nash, the Nationals deputy leader, has announced that she definitely has joint mm. British citizenship. So, uh, you know, it just it seems to draw in more and more MPs every week. And I, I think it's starting to do real damage to the institution of the parliament, you know, and I think um, that's regrettable because... Um, obviously, it's a constitutional issue from 110 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, what, whatever the the source of it is, you know, well, we know it's the constitution. But yeah, look, it's starting to have a real problem. You know, a blowback. I think people are getting really cheesed off about it, and, and ordinary voters are rightly saying of their mm. politicians, you know, when can you get your your act together? And people have been making, I think, the very good point, which mm. is that there's a level of a benefit of doubt that seems to get applied to politicians and to our leaders that is not applied to citizens by our leaders. So if you look Mm, at the sort of things that uh, the way that Centrelink treats people, for example, where basically you're guilty until you can prove yourself innocent, um, there's no sort of onus of proof applied to our politicians. And Richard Cook actually wrote an excellent article recently um, in the Saturday paper where he talked about how there just doesn't seem to be accountability for those at the top. No. Well, also, it's on the front page of the form you have to fill out to become, to nominate for the House of uh, Representatives, for example. Someone tweeted the picture of the form and it's in huge, bold letters at the front. Make sure you check. And it actually quotes the Constitution. Here's the relevant section. Yeah. So, I mean, it's very hard to miss. And surely you, if you were doing something that has such a high level of responsibility and accountability, you might make sure. Yeah, and it's interesting too that it seems to be no Labor MPs have been drawn into the mm. controversy. So it as seems yet. as though... Well, well they're as trying yet. to drag Bill Shorten into it, aren't they? As yet, it seems as though Labor's vetting seems to have been superior to particularly the minor parties. Um, and so, you know, I think that shows that um, that some MPs have not done their homework. Mm. And, you know, I think there's also an interesting divergence between what the Greens did. The, both the Greens senators found to be dual citizens resigned, which I think was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of the coalition MPs or senators who have been found to be dual citizens have resigned. They've basically referred themselves to the High Court. Um, and, and I think that also shows a kind of a worrying hip- hypocrisy, basically, because they got really stuck into the Greens about it. Um, and then when when the blowtorch was turned back on them, they suddenly decided that it was all for the High Court to decide. Mm. And so this will be a very important judgment when the High Court, 
you know, makes this decision. It will really redefine Section 44 of the Constitution and hopefully we'll get some clarity on this issue because it's ridiculous in a migrant nation where 30% or more of Australians were born overseas that this kind of constitutional legacy can can stop people from being, you know, representatives of of the democracy. Indeed, Ben. And the directions hearing at the High Court will be on Thursday, but most people believe... The High Court will only really deal with this in October because they have a full book basically for September. They're busy busy judges yeah. at the High Court because they've got the marriage equality plebiscite to rule on as well. They do. And, uh, and I mean, the seven MPs have been referred now to the High Court... So we have plenty of time for more to jump on board. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I Take was a number. It's like the yeah. deli, is it? You know? <laughs> it is a bit. Who's going to be left in the parliament? <laughs> yeah, I was I know, wondering I that know. the other day, really. Uh, well, uh, someone made a joke the other day that Pat Dodson it will be pretty safe uh, yes. <laughs> being a, a First Nations uh, MP himself. Truly. So. That, and, yeah, they're probably the only people who That's are right. safe right That's now. correct, yeah. We, and we should have more Indigenous MPs in our parliament, so let's we'll, we'll park that for another day. Yes, yeah, so let's not make a joke about no, a very serious issue that like is that. very serious, and I would never joke about it. So let's move on to something else, which is a bit of a joke, Pauline Hanson's... Um, stunt in the Senate. Uh, I'm not going to give it the air that it deserves, but I do feel it's important to acknowledge that there's some kind of conduct um, that our parliamentarians have been undertaking that is not parliamentary, really. Yes, I mean, I think there's many things you could call out that was wrong with this. Firstly, it was, yeah, unparliamentary. Secondly, it was a stunt, you know, a a particularly juvenile stunt, which I think shows the kind of calibre of person that Pauline Hanson is. And Thirdly, it was an instance of very naked race baiting, frankly. Mm. I mean, it was um, openly calling on the the worst angels of Australian democracy, you know, really, as Hanson has done consistently throughout her career. And a very interesting thing happened after she did the veil stunt, which was that George Brandis, the leader of the government in the Senate, got up and made... Um, really quite a passionate speech uh, decrying Hanson for her stunt and claiming mm. that, uh, you know, she was uh, setting back the cause of national security. Um, and he got a standing ovation from the Greens and the Labor senators for that yes. speech. Um, and and probably, not from his own side, though. But not from his own side. Which is a bit odd. Which is very interesting, I think, and maybe shows just how uncomfortable the coalition is with discussing issues around uh, religion and religious freedom uh, that they're completely divided over these issues I think along a number of uh, fault lines so um, a very interesting moment but I agree we shouldn't give it too much uh, too no. much airtime because basically Hanson is a disgusting blight on our democracy and I just wish she went away well she is the result of a double dissolution election so thank you Malcolm for that gift um, but also I mean one of the things it does highlight is that the coalition needs to negotiate with crossbenchers and they have been doing so including with one nation on a range of issues and one of those was around the abc uh recently and trying to reveal the salaries of key abc presenters because apparently you know that would say something about the broadcaster yes indeed what else have they been negotiating or, you know, doing deals on? That- uh, a few things, actually. Yeah. yeah. So there's a few government 
bills that are definitely live and that they're negotiating about. One of them um, is the drug testing for welfare recipients. So the government has has yet to get that through. Um, and it's talking to Nick Xenophon team and Pauline Hanson's One Nation, uh, presumably also to the Greens, although, of course, they won't support it, um, about this uh, this mooted plan to drug test welfare recipients, particularly New Start recipients. Um, very, very interesting details came to light today about what they plan to do. One positive drug test, uh, if it happens, will uh, get you quarantined for your welfare. You'll be put onto a basics card mm. um, and 80% of your welfare will be uh put on that card and you won't be able to spend it as cash you'll be you will be obviously able to spend it at Coles and Woolworths um so um quite a uh, draconian intervention into the lives of welfare recipients which I might add we're already doing in, yes. uh, in many places around the country particularly in indigenous communities Yep, we are with the cashless welfare card. And uh, Christian Porter, who's the social services minister, announced um, one of the first trial sites would be in Canterbury, Bankstown, uh, which and it would begin, should it get through, in 2018. So they're still moving ahead as if it will come through. Absolutely, yeah. The government's agenda on welfare has been pretty, you know, pretty belligerent and they haven't really um, halted. You know, we talked a lot about robo-debt in the first half of the year. The government's online compliance initiative for Mm. welfare recipients. That's still going ahead. You know, they haven't backed away from that at all. No. Um, and the drug testing is the next tranche of that of that program. And the Senate inquiry into the robo-debt system, uh, the reports have been handed down, including the, the obviously consensus and dissenting reports. Did anything really eventuate apart from, um, you know, highlighting the great uh, distress that it's been causing people and also the inaccuracies? No, no. The government basically issued a dissenting report and refused to accept the findings of the majority report, uh, which, by the way, is devastating and well worth a read if you're interested in that kind of stuff because it reveals the cruelty of the Centrelink robo-debt regime and just the amount of misery that it inflicted on people, Mm. of course, entirely unnecessarily because in many cases they were completely wrong. Yes, and Ben, one of the things which had been on the agenda, still is, but has the citizenship debate has really um, kind of taken a lot of the air out of it and perhaps that's a good thing. But um, we have seen and talked about the fact that marriage equality has been used by uh, the coalition as a tool to, I guess, undermine Malcolm Turnbull's leadership and it's a bit of a wedging point between the Conservatives and the more wet Liberals, as they might say. Uh, and obviously we will have a postal survey, a non-binding postal survey uh, on this issue and it has already brought up a great deal of uh, negative comments and sentiment and posters uh, which have been exceedingly distressing. Um, most recently uh, posters around bus stops suggesting that uh, that. In children in uh, same-sex marriages or those children that are brought up in a, an environment around same-sex couples would be more abused, which is just shocking to even say because it's absolutely not true. I mean, this is something which came up uh, when Mark Dreyfus, the Shadow Attorney General, was asked about it. Why there aren't any standards or rules around this? Well, it's because it's actually it's not a true plebiscite. That's right. If it was an election or a, a true plebiscite, uh, there would be a range of rules that would apply to this kind of campaigning and this kind of material would be ruled out of order and it mm. would have to be taken down. But because of the way that the government has constructed the 
non-binding, non-plebiscite, uh, this kind of stuff can fly, you know. And Australia has uh, a very, very lax regulations for, for that kind of stuff, uh, you know, on justifiable grounds of free speech. But, uh, you know, one of the things that now means that this stuff can happen is like there's basically no prohibition on hate speech of this nature in this campaign and it is going to be a nasty campaign i'm still optimistic i think that the forces of good if you like or progress and equality are mobilizing for this for this uh, survey and i think it's Mm. going to get up i do actually now i think it's going to get up so i'm still cautiously optimistic and one of the things that i'm really optimistic about is that all the universities have got on board and they've launched a massive drive to enrol all their students. So we're seeing hundreds of thousands of younger Australians enrol to vote. And your deadline is Thursday, guys. So if you need if you're not on the roll yet, get on the roll yeah. by Thursday. And check your address. Check your address because that's really important too. Um, and be a part of this so that you can have your say because it's important, um, obviously, for a range of reasons, but perhaps most importantly, simply to right a wrong in Australian policy and law that's been there for a long time. Yeah, and although this is a very uh, unsatisfactory method of conducting it, it doesn't mean that perhaps one should boycott it uh, as some people initially thought. It is important to make sure that we get a resounding yes to be clear that we support equality for everyone. Yeah, I don't support a boycott. And one of the reasons I don't support it is that it won't work um, Mm. because uh, I I don't think a boycott will detract from the legitimacy, the perceived legitimacy of this exercise. Even if many people boycott and turn out as less than 50%, I still think the opponents of same-sex marriage will point to the plebiscite and say, we had a vote, guys. Mm. So I I just don't think a a boycott will work. So in that case, I think it's the responsibility for all of us who want a fairer Australia and want to have equality for people who want to get married, uh, then... their responsibility is to to get out there and vote. It is. Uh, We will be talking about this a bit later in the show with uh, Geordie Silverstein and Mary Tomsick who wrote a piece in Overland. So that will be interesting. We'll be looking at the history of marriage for heterosexuals and uh, homosexuals. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there is a fascinating history um, going back to the colonial period where um, a number of uh, Australian men, in inverted commas, were found on their death or after medical examination to be women, uh, nonetheless legally married Mm. in the colonies. Uh, And so there's a rich history, obviously, of uh, gender bending and and queer sexuality in in Australia that goes unacknowledged, I think, in these debates Mm. often. And all the way back to ancient Egypt, if we look further afield. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, human history is rich in sexual diversity. I think that's undoubted. Yeah. Ben, thank you for coming in and having a chat with us as usual. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Amy. That was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and uh, he joined us regularly to talk federal politics. You are listening to 3RRRFM. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. I'm with you till noon. And as promised, I have Dr Ben White, who is an EU Centre Visiting Fellow at the University of Melbourne. He also teaches history at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And it's wonderful that he joins me in the studio to talk about uh, the history of humanitarian evacuations. Hi, Ben. Hi, morning. Morning. And thanks so much for coming in. 
in. It's really great uh, to grab you while you're here. Uh, it's a pleasure. Yeah. Um, so just a little bit of background on you yourself because um, as you're from Glasgow, we may not be aware of your work. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, um, but I have actually, I think I've seen you on Twitter before. It's probably because you'll have some links in with Melbourne Uni yeah. um, academics there. But uh, your particular research field does have a lot to do with refugees. Right. So I'm a Middle East historian by background. Uh, I started out by working on the Middle East in the 1920s and 30s, the French mandate in Syria. Um, And while I was doing that, I became aware of just how important refugees were in the history of the Middle East in that period when its modern states were being formed. Uh, And so I started researching and also teaching refugee history, first of all in the Middle East and then generally in the world. Uh, That's what brings me here to Australia. I'm doing a big project at the moment on the history of the refugee camp. And I'm here in Australia to think about how mandatory detention policy fits into that context. Um, But I've also still been doing some research on refugees in the Middle East back in the period after the First World War. And that's where this interest in humanitarian evacuations came from, Mm -hmm. because I encountered this instance of tens of thousands of people being evacuated in the space of a couple of weeks from a province that was or had been under French occupation at the end of the First World War and was being handed over to the new Turkish nationalist government. Yeah, so let's do a bit of a a little context and background to this because previous to 1921 um, when we're talking about, well, that this will be the first example that we'll talk about because mm-hmm. there are other examples uh, that we'll get to. But the first one is the Armenians of Silica. Cilicia, sorry. Um, Cilicia. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. Tricky. It's really tricky. Cilicia. Um, so the, the background to that um, is the... Armenian genocide that was taking place uh, during World War One, um, and there was, you know, a great deal of um, deportations of yeah. Armenians, and they were marched through to Syria, yeah. and many of them died. Um, also, were massacred. Uh, so there's a huge uh, history there. Obviously, of the Turkish, um, the three Pashas, the Talat Pasha, yeah, yeah. Anvar Pasha, etc., yeah. who were behind that, uh, and. And clearly there wasn't a great deal of foreign intervention in that particular um, conflict or genocide. Uh, And so then moving to this point uh, where we have Armenians in Cilicia, how did they get there? Were they already based in Cilicia? And what um, made them need to move to be be evacuated? Yeah, so... The whole of the Middle East before the First World War belonged to the Ottoman Empire, right? This is the the long-standing state there. uh, And they were one of the greatest powers, by the way. They had been, although by the 19th century, uh, kind of uh, losing out to to European states. In the First World War, in the context of uh, the struggle between the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, British, French empires... The Ottoman state turned on its Armenian populations, uh, viewing them as disloyal and deporting hundreds of thousands of people in circumstances that ensured that they would not survive um, to its Arab provinces, to Syria. At the end of the war, the French and British occupy 
the Arab provinces, what's now Syria and Lebanon. And the French then push into what's now southeastern Turkey, this province of Cilicia, and they start making plans to return genocide survivors, deportees from elsewhere in the Ottoman Empire to this region where they hope they're going to set up an independent state uh, under French French control, supervision, shall we say. Um, So some Armenians in Cilicia had survived the genocide. They'd been there before. Others in 1919 and 1920 were returned there from, from occupied Syria French-occupied Syria. Um, And that is what they're doing there in 1921 when the French realise that actually their occupation of Cilicia is unsustainable because the Armenians are only a minority of the population Mm. there. A pretty big minority, but they're a minority. And the other people in the province don't want to be governed by France Turkish Muslims, Kurdish Muslims, uh, and a few other smaller groups. At the same time, the French find themselves in a war with a Turkish nationalist resistance that's trying to end the Allied plans for um, partitioning the Ottoman Empire, um, and which proves to be much more robust and successful than anyone was expecting when the Ottoman Empire was defeated at the end of 1918. Yeah. So the French are really at a point where they know they're in a losing battle and uh, and they need to leave, but probably save face a little bit as well. So they enter into an agreement with Turkey, or what is now Turkey. Exactly. The French recognise... Okay, this is 1921. It's a couple of years after the most destructive war in human history, much of which was fought out on French territory and where the French uh, population had lost lost millions of of men, either killed or uh, seriously, seriously injured and permanently maimed. That was a war that had bankrupted pretty much every power that was involved. France Mm -hmm. was bankrupt, and yet it finds itself engaged in this costly uh, counterinsurgency war in Cilicia against people within the population and also trying to defend a long frontier, military frontier through mountainous territory where they're being attacked by the... uh, or they're they're fighting against the, the Turkish nationalists. It's extremely expensive, and once the... Uh, and of course, fighting a war is not very popular no, in this at period home. at home. Yeah. Um, yes. So, uh, once the Turkish nationalists have proved themselves, they've proved that despite occupations on all sides, mm. they are able to 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 last out. The French come around to the idea that it's more sensible to come to a peace accord with them, hand over the province of Cilicia, stick with what they've got in Lebanon and Syria, and um, and reboot their relationship with the, the, the new Turkish national authorities. Mm. Now, that's not a popular decision with French officers on the ground, and, of course, it's not very popular with the Armenians in Cilicia either. No. And what was the response um, by the French officers on the ground who were really facing, um, you know, an Armenian population who was unhappy with this um, as well? Because they were expecting... The French were expecting the Armenians to just stay put. Yeah, they were expecting the Armenians just to stay put. Um, but the French officers on the ground recognised there was no hope of that. 
Okay, so France's envoy, um, Franklin Bouillon, who had travelled to Ankara and made this agreement, he'd come from Paris, he'd gone to Ankara, he didn't know the region especially well. Yeah. Um, in it, you know, in the way that the, the men on the ground did. And um, people in Silesia, French officers in Silesia, they knew there was no way the Armenians would accept uh, staying in the province when it was handed over to Turkish national authorities. And is that largely because of the previous conflict between them and their persecution? Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. Yeah. And also... they're a Christian minority. Yeah, sure. And in uh, 1919 and 1920, uh, so the two years of the French occupation in Silesia, there'd been ongoing uh, uh, strife between Armenians and local Muslims, mm. um, which included revenge attacks by Armenians on, on the Muslim population there, who, whether or not they'd actually been involved in, in the genocide. And that was associated by local Muslims with the French occupation because uh, quite a lot of the troops in the French army were Armenians. Um, and in some ways their hostility to the Armenians was sort of, they viewed it as justified by, they'd always suspected that the Armenians were involved with the Allies and here they yes. were, Armenians serving in the French army. Yes. Um, so the situation in Silesia in 1919-20, early 21, was pretty hostile and nasty. Lots of uh, small-scale violence. Mm, because there was, um, during the war, that idea that the Armenians cited were, along with the Russians and the Greeks, you know, yeah. backed by them. Yeah, exactly. And there was a long history of Western hostile interventions in the Ottoman Empire that tried to make Ottoman Christians a tool uh, mm. against the Ottoman state. Uh, there, there's, there's an external contribution to the tensions and hostilities that gave rise to the, the, the genocide. Yes. And saying that is in no way to justify the genocide. It's to try and understand what gave rise to it. Yes, there's so many factors. Um, it, and that's why uh, it's, looking back, a very interesting but quite opaque still um, yeah. history because uh, it's also very contested yeah. and political even in history and academic history, uh, which, you know, it's all about evidence, but even the evidence is highly contested and also lacking in some regards. Or hidden or destroyed. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, and you then have looked at and gone through the French archives around this humanitarian evacuation because, um, the, as you said, the French realised, well, uh, the Armenians aren't gonna, going to be passive and they're not just going to sit here and do as they're told. Naturally, they are... Um, active agents of their own destiny and they did take charge and you talk about how they took charge and actually how much agency they did have. Could you share with us what that was? Yeah, so the French were uh, in Paris at least, French poli uh, politicians, decision makers, ministers were very hostile to the idea that the Armenians should leave they thought they should stay. They wanted there to be a stable peace settlement in the, in the, the Middle East between the French Empire and Turkey. Uh, and they didn't want large numbers of Armenians fleeing, especially into French-held territory where the French would end up financially responsible for yeah, them. which is Syria. Which is Syria, Lebanon particularly. Yeah. Um, uh, but in the eight, there was an eight-week handover period agreed under the terms of the peace accord between between France and Turkey, which covered the months of November and December 1921. 
And as soon as that accord was announced in Cilicia to the local populations, people who didn't want to stay under Turkish rule began to flee, right? People who had the means upped sticks and uh, headed for other destinations around the eastern Mediterranean, Egypt, Palestine, Cyprus, uh, Constantinople, what's now Istanbul. And French men on the ground were signing their papers and stamping their papers, giving them lissipassi to allow them to leave mm. because they recognised that if they tried to stop people leaving, that would actually trigger a panic and a mass flight out of the province and probably over into uh, into Syria and Lebanon. Mm. Meanwhile, French decision-makers in Paris are still trying to say this is terrible, Uh, they should stay where they are. If they're leaving, it's because there are Armenian nationalist agitators or f British agents or, or other sinister forces persuading them to leave because they want to embarrass France. So going through the archives for this was extremely tense experience, actually, because I knew that at some point an evacuation had taken place. Mm. The archives were organised by date, right through from November into December and you get boxes of material covering just a day or two because it gets so tense it's generating so much stuff and yet right through into late November early December French decision makers in Paris were still saying that the Armenians should stay where they are meanwhile the general in charge of the French army of occupation resigned because he was so furious, a chap named Dufieux, and his immediate superior, the general who was the high commissioner in Beirut, was trying to pass up that information from his own staff to Paris mm -hmm. that there was no way the Armenians were going to stay, while at the same time trying to pass down to his subordinates these instructions that they didn't want to follow. And this is the extremely unstable context that, it, it, that gives rise to the eventual decision to evacuate. Mm. Um, in early December 1921, at the start of November, there'd been probably about 60,000 Armenians in the province of Cilicia, although the numbers are very hard to, to get precisely. Probably more than 30,000 of them had left by the end of November under their own steam. Right. And Wait, most, so that's a one-month period. That's a one-month period. Yeah. And most of the rest hadn't stayed at home. What they'd done was they had moved to a small town called Dertyol, where there was a railway station on the line into Syria. It was the, it was the station next, in, closest to the border of, of French-held territory and to the port of Mersin on the Mediterranean. Probably about seven or 8,000 people were gathered around the railway station with all their possessions, and probably 15,000 or so people were gathered at the port of Mersin. They didn't have the means to travel under their own steam, but they were waiting. Yeah, and, and that's quite phenomenal to think that there's such a huge number of people who have applied that pressure, really um, politically strategic to do so mm. and you um, you've researched and looked into this and, and mentioned that the French was they still had employed tactics such as trying to reduce the number of trains leaving and uh, and but that did increase the yeah. panic obviously. every time that they introduced some kind of restriction more people left yeah or tried to leave and so then 
I mean, there was this other element which is brought into the issue of why the French decided, okay, we're going to have to um, undertake a, a, I guess, more formal humanitarian evacuation, which is a moral responsibility. And you quote a range of sources, which I'd be interested to hear, you know, your views on. The, the people who were citing that France had a moral obligation in this scenario because it seems as if at the moment in the contemporary discussion, moral obligations tend to be quite... Uh, less significant yeah well i think states that find themselves responsible for another population in this way they'll try and duck the responsibility if they can and i argue in i'll be i'll be saying in my talk tonight the reason the french ended up taking responsibility late in the day for evacuating the remaining armenians from cilicia was that there was this moral responsibility that they couldn't get out of on the one hand, that's created by all sorts of groups in France, in the Middle East, mm. and elsewhere in Europe. And diplomats. Right. So you have these um, uh, pro-Armenian voices saying that France is going to be held responsible for this. Uh, that includes, for example, churchmen, uh, popular groups. By the late 19th century, there was a lot of interest in Europe and America in the fate of Middle Eastern Christians. And so there are all sorts of organisations that are contacting the French uh, one way or another um, or putting pressure on their own governments to put pressure on France. And so at the League of Nations, which is just being set up in, in these years in Geneva, um, the Belgian government, for example, um, asks questions about what's going to happen to the Armenians uh, when France withdraws from Cilicia. And so French diplomats all over Europe and, and beyond are reporting that, that, there's, uh, that there's pressure coming on them, that they are going to be viewed as responsible for whatever happens to the Armenians of Cilicia when French troops withdraw. Mm. It's a problem that the French uh, politicians, the French ministers, don't want to deal with. They're already dealing with other problems like withdrawing their army, uh, getting prisoners of war back, uh, withdrawing um, horses, barbed wire all sorts of military uh, military equipment um, and they don't, as I say, they don't want to end up financially responsible for tens of thousands of Armenians coming into the parts of the Middle East that they're holding on to, Lebanon and Syria. But they start to recognise that no one else is going to take responsibility and mm. they're not going to be able to duck it precisely mm. because of all of this information they're getting from their ambassadors all over Europe and also things that are coming in directly to them in Paris from, from people in France, they realise that they're going to be held responsible. Yeah. And the reason why we're focusing on this particular evacuation is because it's one of the earliest examples of a humanitarian evacuation in a conflict, but that is exceedingly under-researched. And because you you do uh, reference in the blurb about your lecture that there are other far more modern examples in the 90s um, and after around conflict, not about natural disasters, mm -hmm. but conflict uh, and refugees in, in conflicts. Um how was this evacuation undertaken as an early example and other, um, I guess, things that we can learn from or that are particularly insightful in this very early example of humanitarian evacuation? Yeah, I think 
uh, there are a number of things we can learn from it. How it's eventually undertaken, what triggers it is not things happening in Silesia itself and not things happening in Paris, but a mutiny on a ship off the port of Alexandria in Egypt of a group of about 350 Armenian refugees who had left under their own steam who weren't allowed access to Egypt by the British authorities there. Quite a lot had already entered. And so Egypt and also other ports around the... uh, other destinations around the eastern Mediterranean start saying, too many of these people have come in, we've got to close the doors. Um, France needs to take them into Syria and Lebanon. And this group of Armenians in Alexandria, or rather at sea just off Alexandria, mutinied at the idea of being returned to Cilicia, the province they'd just fled, and insisted on being taken to, to French mandate Lebanon and Syria instead. And that was what push the French to say, okay, we'll let them in. And then also within a day or two after that to Mm -hmm. make plans to evacuate all the rest. Um, And over the last two weeks of December 1921, they evacuated, I think, somewhere between 20 and 30,000 people with a relay of massive ships carrying 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 people at a time. It's a huge undertaking. It's a massive undertaking. Now, where does that capacity come from? I think that the capacity, the logistical capacity for managing a mass transfer of people like that emerged in just this period because of the logistical techniques of armies during the First World War Mm. needing to mobilise enormous numbers of men, transfer them over long distances. This is something that states uh, that had been involved in the conflict had learned how to do, how to move people Uh, by different forms of transport, but also particularly how to manage that kind of movement and ensure that the people uh, who are being evacuated can be resettled somewhere rapidly. Mm. That they survived as well and arrived in a fairly healthy condition. Yeah, in pretty good condition, actually. And although it was very uh, rapid quite hasty and not planned with more than a couple of days notice nonetheless that because these people had prepared to leave and had gathered at the port and the railway uh, ready to go they'd been able to bring a lot of their stuff with them uh, which means that they were actually much better set up on arrival for for being resettled in Syria and Lebanon which happened with no consultation with the Syrian and Lebanese populations by the Mm. way so what can we learn from this first of all it's to think about evacuations as this logistical process which becomes thinkable because it's become practicable it is something that states can now do move tens of thousands of people in the space of a few days and do so rapidly and safely but also we learn what kinds of moral pressures modern populations organizing through uh, different forms of uh, civil society organisation through churches, through different associations, they can bring a kind of moral pressure to bear on the state, um, uh, which the media can amplify. I think that's important. It's not something that, that happened earlier on. And there's also something of an, an awkward implication to, to this timing Because these years around the First World War, 
which are years of mass transfers of populations, displacement of millions of people owing to the conflict itself, but also owing to uh, ethnic violence, deportation um, by, by governments and so on. This is a period where getting rid of hundreds of thousands or millions of people by forced displacement becomes becomes thinkable as well. And it's in this period that humanitarian evacuations also emerge. There's an American historian of the Middle East named Keith Wattenpoor who makes the point that humanitarian evacuations often serve the perpetrators of violence because you're taking the people they want to get rid of off their hands. It's an uncomfortable thing to think about, but I think that that's an element of of this um, this evacuation here in 1921 mm. and is worth thinking about when we look at later instances of humanitarian evacuations and understand uh, in what context they arise and what and their is, effects are, what their consequences are. Is that why there's such a reluctance um, to engage in humanitarian evacuations in a very in a logistical, planned, large-scale way to really intervene and displace a huge number of people from a conflict. I mean, what elements nowadays or even in, now in the contemporary scenarios that you also have looked into, um, such as Kosovo and, and after, mm. um, what is it that means that um, we're more reluctant to engage in this kind of thing? Well... I don't know if we're actually more reluctant. Uh, I think we're just as reluctant, or other right. states are just as reluctant. It hasn't changed um, a lot. Uh, it hasn't changed that much. I think this is an unusual case from the early 1920s because France ended up on the hook morally for what mm. happened, whereas uh, uh, the same year, no, a year later, sorry, when um, uh, the port of Smyrna was retaken by Turkish nationalist forces. Um, there were lots of different states involved. Greece, which had occupied the port and then used it as a base for its invasion of, uh, of Anatolia, and then allied different allied powers that had their ships in the harbour and were observing. And because there were lots of different states involved, no one of them took responsibility for evacuating mm. refugees. Mm. And therefore, in the destruction of the city, tens of thousands of people were killed. So the moral responsibility was diluted or unclear. Exactly. And yeah. so although eventually an evacuation started taking place, it took place too late yeah. after a large number of people had already been killed. Um, and it started off as a kind of private initiative uh, of a, an American resident of Smyrna who was going back and forth trying to force the representatives of the Allied powers to start evacuating people. It wasn't something that any of those states began um, off their own bat, so mm. to speak. And so now that we're looking at conflicts um, such as those in Syria yeah. and a great deal of uh, Syrians leaving and moving to camps in places like Jordan, um, we're not really seeing a concerted humanitarian evacuation in the same way that, um, you know, this was undertaken by a, a particular country. Yeah. This is something something else. What is, what's the current state of play for humanitarian evacuations in conflicts? So there's a couple of big differences. One is that after the Second World War, 
the international institutions that we know that are associated with the United Nations um, develop and have much greater capacity to assist populations in places of need, for example, the UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, and also to move people, the International Organization for Migration. At times, and, and that means that no one state finds itself responsible because states can always say this is for the international community to deal with. Um, and sometimes the international community does deal with it. A recent example was when Libya... Uh, uh, broke down into violence in early 2011. There were hundreds of thousands of third country nationals in Libya, migrant workers from Egypt, Tunisia, from uh, sub-Saharan Africa. The International Organization for Migration took responsibility for evacuating 140,000 of them in the space of about three months. So not quite as rapid an evacuation as Armenians from Cilicia, but larger and more complex as well because it was dealing with citizens of, of probably uh, dozens of countries. Um, but that was an evacuation from a conflict where major Western powers were involved and therefore they wanted to make sure that the humanitarian uh, effects were, were limited and where other powers didn't care enough about what was happening to try and stand in the way. It wasn't going to uh, generate opposition from Russia or China, for example, uh, to evacuate third country nationals, not Libyans, mm. third country nationals from Libya. In other cases, the high diplomacy of this kind of evacuation is more complicated and difficult. And sometimes the numbers are much bigger as well. Yeah. I think that's the case in Syria today. Well, also involvement of the Russians means yeah. that uh, the Security Council and, and their power is wielded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is uh, that is definitely true. Um, I think in the Syrian case, other countries don't have that individual moral responsibility that France ended up with in 1921 for the Armenians of Cilicia. I think that because there are international agencies like UNHCR, they can say, no, the best way to help these people is through assistance uh, channeled to them in neighbouring countries. Um, and, yeah, I think, yeah. I think that's... And yet some uh, countries like Jordan are doing a lot of the work in this, yeah. but uh, other countries like Saudi Arabia are completely not interested. Well, this is something that may be overstated. Right. Um, I don't... They wanna... haven't taken any refugees, though, no, have right. they? No, I would never want to go out to bat for Saudi Arabia. <laughs> it's not a country that I like. Um, however... Well, we don't want to misrepresent them either, but no. my understanding was that Jordan has taken most of them and put them into refugee camps, whereas a lot of the other surrounding Middle Eastern countries are very reluctant to set up temporary camps or even somewhat permanent yeah, camps. countries now. a bit further away have not. Um, the neighbouring countries, Turkey, above all, yeah. has taken close on 3 million mm. now um, uh, although that's a large country with a population of 70 or 80 million of its own yeah. Jordan and Lebanon are much smaller countries and although the absolute numbers they've taken are smaller um, around about a million each 
uh, with more in Lebanon, slightly fewer in Jordan. Uh, they're much smaller countries, so that's a huge proportion of their total population yeah. equivalent and places enormous pressure on on uh, various infrastructure services, things like that. Um, most, in all of these countries, most Syrian refugees are not in camps. They're actually... Uh, living in town cities where they can basically um and in some ways that's a good thing it makes it harder for humanitarian organizations to access them but on the other hand it means that they are not confined in one place and unable to move unable to participate in in the workforce in in the wider social life and so on what about countries nearby but not right next door saudi arabia is a good example um, Saudi Arabia, of course, like uh, other Western and Eastern powers, has its own skin in the fight in Syria. It's backing particular groups. It is to some extent involved in supporting Syrians outside the country, even though it hasn't taken in a lot of refugees, because there's a, I would guess, a pretty large number of Syrians who are working in Saudi Arabia as regular migrant workers and supporting a lot of people living as refugees in countries neighbouring Syria through their wages, by remitting Mm. their wages. This kind of thing is quite common. You'll have families living in northern Jordan where the father of the family um, usually is working in Saudi Arabia or one of the other Gulf states. Um, there's also some contribution to the costs of refugee support coming from from the Gulf. Um, as I say, I don't want to go out to bat for Saudi Arabia, um, but... Uh, well, there's an economic influence at play there, really, isn't there? There is. Um, I'm also dubious of the claim that Saudi Arabia ought to do more because they're Arabs too, they're Muslims too, because that implies that Basically, refugees should be left to people like them. Mm. It's a way of saying... It's a way of backing away from the universal uh, notion of humanity, shared humanity, that underpins the 1951 Refugee Convention. Absolutely. Well, it's it's segregating people based on a a broad geographic identity. And as we know, Middle East is not homogenous. Not at all. So, uh, yeah, very interesting. I'm sorry we've run out of time, Ben, but thank you very much for giving us such an insight into the history. And this is just the start. (laughs) There's so much more to it. Um, but uh, if any of our listeners want to um, head along to your talk tonight, they can do so. It starts at 6pm, goes till 7.30 and it's at Arts West, uh, which is the new arts building at the University of Melbourne. Um, you can access it from Swanson Street or Royal Parade. Uh, it's closer to Royal Parade uh, and it's in room 553. Uh, and if you want to quickly have a look at all the details, it's called Grudging Rescue the history of humanitarian evacuations. Thanks, Ben, for coming in and for doing research on clearly such an important but um, just under-researched topic. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, That was Dr Ben White, who teaches history at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, and he's currently an EU Centre visiting fellow 
at the University of Melbourne and uh, this is his last week in Melbourne so make sure you give him a warm welcome if you uh, go and see him tonight and he's also uh, giving another lecture on Thursday about refugees and Syria so um, do check that out on the University of Melbourne website too. You're listening to Uncommon Sense. I was just chit-chatting with our guests there um, because it's just too tempting to talk um, about what's coming up. Uh, and so I will introduce them right now so we can get straight into it. I have Dr. Geordie Silverstein and Dr. Mary Tomsick in the studio uh, and they're both from the University of Melbourne, um, that hallowed uh, institution in Melbourne. <laughs> We've got quite a lineup of Melbourne Uni people today. And Geordie uh, is a postdoctoral research fellow in history at Melbourne Uni and um, she's the author of Anxious Histories, Narrating the Holocaust in Jewish Communities at the Beginning of 21st Century and she's currently researching the history of Australian government policy toward child refugees since the 1970s, which is very interesting. And Mary is an ARC postdoctoral research associate at the University of Melbourne researching the history of visual representations of child refugees and uh, and she also has a book which will be published in October this year called Beyond the Silver Screen, A History of Women, Filmmaking and Film Culture in Australia. It sounds right up my alley. Um, and she teaches and researches in cultural history, Australian film culture and the history of gender and sexualities. How amazing to have such expertise in the room today. Thank you, uh, Geordie and Mary. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. It's great to have you. Now, you've written a piece, co-authored a piece, so you must be a pretty good team to be able to (laughs) (laughs) come to, you know, a consensus view in an article on on this, oh, the history of marriage and putting that in the context of this um, equal marriage, same-sex marriage debate that we're currently having, which has really been thrust upon us by the coalition government because... um, Obviously, we've long been advocating for marriage equality, but that said, um, you know, not necessarily in the way that it has eventuated right now. And so, yeah, we are somewhat reluctantly engaging in this type of type of debate and discussion. Um, I want to start with how you set up um, your piece because you... We often talk about the negative consequences of the no arguments and how that is quite toxic and we've seen some examples of that recently, um, you know, in Melbourne. But you talk about um, the the really problematic issues that are raised in the yes and the no. So I want to come to that first because you talk about the different arguments that there are and what's problematic with them on both sides. So um, I'll let you, consensus view, decide who goes with that one first. Yeah, so, I mean, the article came about because Mary and I share an office um, at yeah. work. And so we were watching all, you know, all the social media conversations and just, you know, Twitter and Facebook. It's constant, you know, all of our friends in our community is talking about it. And we ended up just kind of ranting to each other constantly. <laughs> We'd be interrupting each other saying, did you see this post? It's so annoying because it raises this history. And did you see this post? It just misses this, you know, queer perspective. And... And so in kind of a fit of annoyance, we were like, let's just write something together about it. <laughs> That'll solve it. Yeah. But it has kind of, you know, helped. It's really contributed. Yeah. And so we've been really kind of amazed by how much it's been shared on Facebook and, mm. and how much people are responding positively. And I think it really indicates that there is kind of a thirst for this deeper thinking, mm. that people are kind of responding in this knee jerk. And it's really important um, for us to acknowledge the harm that is being done by the no campaign. 
but people also do want more. Yeah. And we guess we were just wanting to push that thinking along, as you say, and, and ask people to open themselves up to thinking more critically about what could a positive yes campaign and just a positive relationship campaign look like. Yes, yeah. And and we'll get to what that does look like. And I want to talk about, you raise some of the arguments around the yes vote and you say that they coalesce around a few ideas. That acts, And I'm quoting you now, uh, that access to marriage is a right that should be open to all, that same-sex couples are facing a unique discrimination that straight couples have not faced, that it is offensive that people should be asked to vote on this issue and that marriage is an expression of love. And now you say these are comfortable ideas but need to be placed within histories of marriage, an institution that has often been used to control, direct, sanction and unfairly deny types of relationships between certain people and within certain groups. Now, that's absolutely right. I think we have become a bit comfortable and complacent around some of those arguments because it is true that um, particularly, for example, mixed-race couples uh, within in Australia but also overseas were not able to marry up until very recently um, in terms of state-sanctioned marriage um, because we also need to somewhat uh, outline that this is about civil state sanctioned marriages that are recognised by a state versus those that are, you know, through a a religious um, ceremony that's ordained by, you know, for example, the Catholic Church. Um, So, I mean, with those arguments that you say are somewhat um, unquestioned, uh, what are some of the historical learnings or, um, you know, arguments back about, about those assumptions? Well, I guess we can look at that in a range of ways. Um, I think if we look at changes in legislation, as as you mentioned, when the state allows particular relationships and sanctions particular relationships and and, and doesn't, but we also have those social practices, which I think are really important and linked to that is... I think we, we also talk about there's nothing natural about desire, that desire is part of culture and who people choose to partner with or choose to have relationships is something that has a history and is part, is, is, is a learned practice, mm. I guess. And so I guess it's just being mindful of that. Some of the campaigns, I think the way it gets run discussing about love is love, but love has a history. Mm. It's, you know, it's, it's not something that is... Um, unquestionably true. It's something that we feel, but it's part of our culture that changes over time. Different people are deemed desirable at different points in the past and present. Yeah. And when I was looking into the history of um, marriage, I did see that, um, is it the Roman Emperor Nero got married to a male um, and he dressed as a bride, uh, actually. He wore a veil, um, but he was was one of the first ever um, homosexuals to get married. Yeah, right. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know it either (laughs) until I had a look. It was really interesting to say that not only is there a history of heterosexual marriage but of homosexual marriage Mm. that that was quite out. Like people were aware that they're both men. It wasn't like anyone was really actually identifying with another gender. They were still identifying as male. Mm. Um, But, yeah, I find that really interesting but also that in the history of marriage it wasn't always necessarily had to be some super formalized you know sanctioned legalistic thing it could have just been two people standing next to each other saying i do i'm committing to marry you and then bam you're married and the state recognizes that as being legal absolutely and i think you know one of the other things that i research is history of australian jewish sexuality and as part of that 
you know, of um, writing a piece around um, two Melbourne Jewish lesbians who were wedded by their synagogue. And there were the, there's been a, a couple of um, sets of Jewish uh, lesbians who have been wedded by synagogues. So it's a formal mm. Jewish marriage or, or, or Jewish wedding. Um, that, I mean, yeah, it's obviously not a marriage within within state sanction, but they feel wedded to each other. Their community recognised them as being wedded. They said the prayers and the rituals. They were, it was a rabbi that did the ceremony, and so and they're also you know not interested in a state ceremony. For them, it was important that their community validated mm. their relationship. So I think there's all sorts of different ways in which people do sort of do these relationships and, and formalise them or, or live them informally. Mm. Um, and I guess that's also something we want to point towards is the that there is no necessity to be married, right? Yes. That there's no necessary correlation between love and, or intimacy or marriage, um, that you can do all of these things in <clears throat> so many different ways. Yes, and that marriage has evolved and continues to change mm-hmm. in terms of our cultural view of what it involves. Because, I mean, one could argue, and you've opened the space for this, to talk about, well, if someone wants to get married, could it be different to how it is right now? Could we conceive of a marriage that is less constraining and conservative in the expectations that we have around marriage because it is quite traditional the the cultural at least consensus around what marriage is what marriage involves yeah i think it definitely is um and if we look at trends of say women getting married to men and changing surnames but you know perhaps that's a practice that may evolve although we i think we are seeing more women who marry men changing their family name which Mm. is something that's symbolic that someone may really be interested in doing and feel very personally strongly about it. But if we look at it at a cultural level, you know, what what work is that doing in yeah. terms of um, labelling people and linking people to family in particular ways yeah. that I think is worth worth thinking through and is that something someone does want to be part of and why and what are the implications of, of that? Yes, because it, I guess... When we're looking at this, what's the alternative to marriage? It's not being married. It might be being a de facto couple, for example. And um, generally, you know, you have significant legal rights as a de facto couple as well. But there is some um, cultural uh, significance that marriage bestows and also that... um, other couples bestow on one another to be, oh, well, we're married, you're married, you know, so we're in a bit of a club. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's absolutely true. There is this kind of it's seen as a as a step up or a better kind of relationship. Um and I guess that was something I wanted to point to as well as the fact that we don't need to be in couples. You know, yeah. single life mm-hmm. is really wonderful in all sorts of ways and a equally valid I mean it sounds ridiculous to say equally valid choice and mm. and I mean that more in a queer way than a I guess liberal politics way. Smaller yeah. liberal obviously. But um you know, you don't need to be in a couple. You can be in a threesome. You can be in whatever kind of relationship you want and that's what we want to be building towards mm. um, is this deprioritising of marriage as the ultimate way in which one should live. Or express their love. Yeah. Yeah. 
And one of the things that I've seen, um, and I've chatted to my various Uber drivers about this, <laughs> they brought it up to me. One of the first questions I got from one of my Uber drivers was, are you married? Um, that was recent. And I thought, oh, gosh, we're going there. Um, but one of the things that does come up is this idea that if you're married with someone, you lose your identity or it's diluted and also your independence is diluted. Um, and to me, it seems, and I'm, obviously this will be very personal depending on the person, which, you know, that would be good that we have all individual views. But to mm. me, it should be, you know, that two independent um, people should still be able to maintain their identity and their sense of self and their priorities. And obviously part of the, you know, if you're entering into any form of relationship, there's some kind of compromise, but that you can still be who you are and that that isn't that's a good thing and that it's facilitated or fostered through marriage if that's what you choose rather than hampered or denied is that one of the kind of the constraints that the concept of marriage brings upon people or that's almost a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that they go oh well now we're married I guess we're you know tied to each other (laughs) with a a ball and chain and you know that's it well and I guess that's something that 70s feminists were really interested in um questioning and talking about um that just the constraining elements of marriage particularly for women Mm. um but i guess those politics change and people certainly have all sorts of relationships married people don't necessarily live in the same house together um you know there's there's all sorts of ways people choose to live their lives um but i guess it's questions about what does that institution Mm. and what are the normative um elements of it that is assumed about people that we um participate in when we promote marriage Mm. over other forms of relationships and um, setting that up I guess as a goal that I think we wanted to really think think about and maybe to think a bit more broadly about why focus why focus on that type of relationship yeah and well let's talk about um some of the other things that you would like to open up like where we want to get to at the end of this discussion is the you know, positive um, solutions, <laughs> which is always a nice thing to have as a goal, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So we are, that is our goal, just so everyone's aware. Um, so, I mean, you talk about um, that these marriages and institution, I mean, it's almost seen as a bit of a human right to be able to marry, but that's not been the case either. No. Um, I think... You know, it's a very particular framing of it to see it as a human right to um, have that kind of um, marriage. And I guess that was kind of something that we wanted to point towards is, you know, that the state is deeply problematic. Any nation state is deeply problematic. Australia at the moment, um, if you're coming from the left, is obviously not a rights-based place, besides the fact that we don't have any kinds of formalised Bill of Rights or anything like that. Mm. We, you know, as, as we said in the piece, we know that, Aboriginal people are incarcerated at outrageous rates. We know about Manus and Nauru and onshore detention as well. You know, we know that this is one of a number of ways in which Australians and foreigners who come to Australia, um, people who interact with the Australian state, don't have rights. Mm. So it's kind of, it's, it's, I mean, it's a reform for sure. Um, and, it, and there's a need to always reform a state as well as, you know, work towards other things like decolonisation. But I think it needs to be seen within that context that this isn't going to be liberation. This mm. is for anyone. Um, yeah. And I think it just, 
it continues to reinforce ideas about which relationships are good and which relationships are bad. Um, and I, I think that's that I find that deeply troubling, being kind of to privilege one type of relationship over another. Mm. Yes, because, I mean, when we're thinking about the technicalities of this, what is really the difference between a de facto or, a, you know, not even living together, not being de facto relationship or being married or being, you know of any kind of couple what is the difference you have a ceremony you sign a register um you know it's formalized but really the legal rights are generally but not completely the same um but but thinking even beyond legalistic terms i mean it obviously is about something much more than that isn't it absolutely and i think um i think we're really lucky that de facto is pretty much the same in Australia. Yeah. Of course, it's not the same for people who are trying to migrate here. Um, and I think that's really important. There are really valid, important reasons why people use marriage as a way to um, assist migration. Mm. Um, and I think that's a real problem with the way that migration functions in this country, that that um, one's re- yeah, the formalising of one's relationship should have a bearing on that. Um, yeah. Sorry, I forgot the second well, bit of your question. Well, um, <laughs> marriage being, or even coupledom and the I, those concepts, those categories tend to have, they're utilised because it's a legal um, way of framing things to show that, yes, you have rights, um, you know, equal rights in these situations and um, that if something goes awry, you can, you can do something about it. Um, whereas, I mean, a relationship is a lot more than just your legal rights, I guess what I'm saying, I know it's a pretty obvious thing to say, but it seems like in in this discussion, because we are focusing on reforming an act, um, we can get bogged down in legal Mm -hmm. jargon and concepts of love rather than love itself. Yeah, and how individual relationships end up playing out Mm. is in a multitude of messy ways. Um, Life and relationships are exactly that and... I think that's where there's interesting discussion to be had. Mm -hmm. In the different ways that people have their relationships, but perhaps that's not yet um, normalised or the the norm. No. Yeah. And those depictions, well, they're probably not really depicted in popular culture in the ways that they could to, you know, make people realise that's a normal thing. Yes, yes. And, I mean, as we know, we've... Um, child sex abuse, all these sort like there can be absolutely horrible and devastating things within families and there's also a long history in Australia of Indigenous people fighting to keep their families together. Mm. The, you know, the way the state interacts with um, control over people's lives is very specific depending on who you are, where you come from, what privileges you have access to. And all of those elements, I think, are a really important part of how we should think about marriage and what aspects of it we really we want to celebrate and what mm. we want to question. Mm. And I think, you know, that's a really important point is that I think this is right for, for women. The biggest health risk factor is being in a relationship with a man, right? Like that's, it's a really big issue that, that all this discussion and this glorification of marriage really covers over um, some of the problems of, mm. of certain types of intimate relationships. And I think we need more space for different ideas about what love is and to kind of decouple love from marriage, mm. I think, and intimacy from marriage and, and open our minds up to 
and and yeah, our cultural representations and the histories we tell and and what we think of as normal and natural, but also being open to difference and saying that's not normal for me, but that's cool, like that's fine, and and yeah. you do you, and yeah. And I guess you can extend that more broadly because it's not just two people usually, although that's also not an assumption we should make, but often there will be children involved if you have kids um, and that they're part of that family unit or marriage and that there's a whole other way to live as a family too that doesn't have to be sticking to strict norms as to what is a parent and what is a couple as parents. Yeah, and who children's role models are going to be. They can come from anywhere. Families are big. There's often multiple generations, not necessarily related by blood, but by friendship and commitment and to each other. There's whole ranges of ways this plays out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I was really interested um, that... uh, and I really obviously always like a Judith Butler quote, <laughs> <laughs> naturally, uh, and you do quote her. So I just want to, um, I just want to quote it um, yeah. because it's interesting, uh, but also relevant. And, uh, and she says that for a progressive sexual movement, even one that may want to produce marriage as an option for non-heterosexuals, the proposition that marriage should become the only way to sanction or legitimate sexuality is unacceptably conservative. Well, that (laughs) sums it up in a bit of a nutshell, doesn't it? (laughs) But, I mean, what does Judith Butler have to say about this beyond that? Well, I think she she talks through um, the multiple ways you can be for same-sex marriage or marriage equality, depending on what historical moment, the different terms that we've used. But I think exactly, I think that's her, her key point there that we we shouldn't celebrate this over other forms yeah but this is a legal reform we should have yes you should have the option absolutely yes yeah um but to think carefully about i think she's really asking us to think carefully about the way we go about getting that change Mm. that change made and the types of arguments we use. Yes. Exactly. And I yeah. think, you know, there's a lot of people at the moment saying, like, let's get marriage equality and then we can argue for other things. And I think what we're trying to say and, you know, following from Butler is let's not get marriage equality, see that as a first step. Let's see that as kind of a, a sidestep on a way to kind of relationship liberation. Mm. Um, and it's not, yeah, it's not the first goal because um, there is also the concern that that will be the end goal and people will stop campaigning and that will be the end of things. But mm. If we run a positive campaign, if we run an imaginative campaign or if just a set of discussions and, and conversations at this moment, then that'll help to attain, attain other things and see marriage as, as just one kind of uh, piece of the puzzle. Yeah. So just to, to put the spotlight on you guys for a minute here, because um, I know it's, it's you, you've been very... Um, well, you've got an opinion, but you're very measured in your opinion. But I want to know about you personally. What do you think about um, marriage yourself and and relationships and how would you define um, or what would you like to see be, be more opened up about this debate personally? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm single at the moment and very yeah. happily single mm. um, in my mid-30s and... and I find, I mean, it's interesting when there's all this conversation around harm and I don't feel harmed um, at all in this moment, but um, I do feel that the constant focus on on coupledom Mm. is really uh, tedious um, and boring and feels like a bit of a weight. Um, And I think 
Yeah, and I, and I guess that's... I don't see marriage as an end goal in my life. I don't see coupledom as an end goal in my life. Um, although family and, you know, many friends and, and what broader family would, would probably prefer otherwise. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Love it. Familial yeah. pressure. Yeah. Great. <laughs> but, yeah, um, yeah, I guess... Yeah, why I wanted to write this piece with Mary was... Yeah, it comes from a personal perspective of wanting something different to marriage to be part of the conversation. Yeah. My partner jokes that I'll never be her wife. (laughs) (laughs) Which is... Yeah, I I guess, I mean, my feminist politics means that that's not something I want for me. Yeah. But, you know, I've very happily enjoyed many friends' weddings. Yeah, well, (laughs) Um, it'd be pretty fun. (laughs) Especially the Jewish weddings. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) A lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah. But... um. I guess, you know, we we have two kids. Yeah. Um, and, but I, I guess I don't want, I don't want my relationship labelled by any of those, any terms. Yeah. We, we, we live our lives as we do mm. and we're very lucky to be able to do that and I feel, feel very able to do that. Um, like Jody, I don't particularly feel harmed by discussions that are going on, although I know many, many people do. Mm. Um, and I, I'm not convinced that changes in law will necessarily stop homophobia and mm. violence no. um, <laughs> at all, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that's marriage isn't something that I've ever dreamed of. Yeah, well, it's not. It hasn't. It's not a dream for everyone, is it? No, mm. and that's something that isn't normalised, or at least seen to be mm. part of the norm and a real option yeah. for people. Yeah. So I really appreciate you, like, provoking everyone to think differently about marriage and also just other forms of relationships or not being in a relationship as well, because um, it's just something that we, when we get caught up in this debate really struggle to step back from and see the bigger picture so yeah really appreciate you guys putting yourselves out there and drawing our attention to the historical aspects of things thank you thanks um that is the article i'm gonna just so you know it's called marriage stinks uh so if you google marriage stinks overland it will turn up first uh hit on google and uh and i've been speaking with geordie silverstein and mary tomsick and uh and they are both from the university of melbourne historians wonderful historians um doing some great work with people like joy demusi who we've also had on the show so thank you both and have a lovely week thank, thank you. you yes this is uncommon sense on three triple rfm i'm with you up until noon my name is amy mullins and I have with me uh, two fabulous guests who are uh, really involved in a wonderful event in Ballarat. Uh, it's called the Ballarat International Photo Biennale and it's photo with an F-O-T-O if you're Googling that. Uh, and the exhibition is called A Field Guide to the Stars and Stars in the Sky, not Celebrities. Uh, and so we are talking to one of the artists, Eric William Carroll, who's a US-based photographer and artist, and also the curator, uh, Rebecca Najowski. Um, thank you both for joining me on this wonderful day and to talk about Ballarat, this fabulous um, place and and Biennale of which this is one of the core exhibitions. Um, I was really intrigued, first of all, to see that Ballarat has an observatory because I didn't even realise that that was the case. 
um, and that you have focused on something we often forget about, which is the thing up above us that we don't really look at. So, um, Rebecca, first of all, um, as an a curator of this or the curator of this particular exhibition, but also a curator more broadly. When you um, were, you know, looking to participate in the Ballarat uh, Biennale, how did this um, concept and theme come about and why did you think it was particularly interesting in this context? Sure. Well, well first off, thanks for having us. Yeah, It's great to share about the show with you. Um, you know, I kind of came to it because I sort of heard from the director Fiona Sweet that um, the observatory was a space potentially available uh, mm. for exhibition. And that was really the sort of hook for me. I just thought it was a fascinating space. I really liked the idea of site-specific curation where the place that is holding the exhibition becomes a part of it um, in a really intrinsic way. So that just sort of sparked an interest. And um, I'm actually a practicing artist. I sort of more identify as that than a curator. Mm. Um, And I... Um, just in my community of practice with other artists, I'm just aware of uh, uh, projects and um, and works that look at uh, sort of co- trying to comprehend the sky in some way. So um, artistic explorations that deal with our place within the universe. And, um, and it's something that I think humans are really fascinated by. Uh, today on my social media feed, Everything is the eclipse, uh-huh. <laughs> and um, and we're just so intrigued by um, by the universe and trying to kind of understand our place in it. Um, so that was the sort of core idea: was looking at different projects that, in different ways, are considering human beings and our relationship with this sort of greater universe. Mm. And I mean, this is a quite a diverse show in the artists and the works that it mm-hmm. brings together. Um, and obviously, the observatory itself is has many different buildings, so that that's right. It lends itself to that mm-hmm. really uniquely. Mm-hmm. Um, what were or what are some of the um, key works? For you, of, we'll get to Eric, which is obviously one of the key works mm-hmm. that's in mm-hmm. one of a great um, building uh, with this gigantic uh, telescope. Yeah. But uh, there, are, what are the other the other features mm-hmm. and the other artists that you've brought together? Yeah, well, uh, one of the other artists who's um, so you might tell by my accent, I'm yeah. <laughs> not from here. I'm also <laughs> from the US, so I do know a lot of practitioners based in the US. Claire Benson is another one. She um, is in one of the other rooms that has this sort of big, obvious telescope. Yes. <laughs> and her work is, um, she was working with the Swedish um, Space Institute um, and, but also Sammy Reindeer Herders in Sweden. And so her work was looking at this relationship between science and myth and this sort of, this idea of kind of like mapping out territory. And um, so her work is pretty significant in that mm. as well. Um, there's another room, which is the Mount Pleasant Radio Telescope room. And so the works in there, I wanted to kind of tie in with the radio telescope, which is actually a telescope that measures typically the sun's activity. 
Mm. And um, so Hilary Wiedemann is a U.S.-based artist, and she's um, working with the sun and perception and kind of phenomenology of these sorts of things. Um, she has cyanotypes of the sun that were taken on the shortest day of the year, and one of them is fixed and one is unfixed. So um, there's actually this sort of sense of time occurring within the photographs themselves. Yeah. And the image shifts over time, and it's going to change in a way that we typically don't think of photography as doing um and kate robertson is another artist who's in that space she's worked um with um ideas of scale really and using very regular materials like pinheads and um chickpeas and she's using that to sort of figure out the scale of our solar system Mm. um but working in kind of Um, a very iterative process with um, silver gelatin printing and toning, but also um, she interestingly would send these pictures to get printed at Officeworks (laughs) and and then re-photograph them again. And she did that many times over, so then you actually sort of see um, the pictures start to kind of fall apart in some ways. Mm. Um, And then also in the show is a site-specific camera obscura, Um, Kate Golding produced that on site and what's really great about the camera obscura it's sort of the most basic camera you can find it's basically a small hole or an aperture in a window in a darkened room and what you see is the outside projected inside Mm. um, but um, inversed and upside down and it's really eerie because there is when you arrive you walk through you see all these little buildings and a beautiful kind of mini forest really Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of these and they're not gum trees they're you know they look european like it has a very eerie beautiful kind of german mysticism to it Mm -hmm. and then when you see it projected inside and you kind of sit you have to sit there for about five to eight minutes for it to truly become clear and and delineated as to what it is you're really looking Mm -hmm. at but it is quite creepy that such a tiny like you know it starts out as a larger hole and then they turn it and turn it and turn it till it gets really little and then your eyes are adjusting and yeah it's Mm -hmm. just one of those it's such a simple thing but it it's so affecting and that's photography it is it is it's really sort of the precursor to the photography that we know yeah and um and i what i really like about that obscura is you you also see the other observatory buildings projected inside and Mm -hmm. so you can kind of start to identify and sort of situate yourself within the place and it's a very experiential kind of piece yeah it is so you can i mean you can wander around all of those buildings Mm -hmm. to get such a different feel and also it's important to mention that as you as an artist yourself are featured in this um, exhibition with one of your videos Mm -hmm. there's uh, two playing in that cinema space uh, one by Alex Cherney and another by yourself Mm -hmm. Um, and his one is uh, it's just yeah it's a time lapse of all of these different um, observatories and uh, I guess all of you know the it's so funny to watch them when they're those little the what are they called the um the arrays yeah, yeah. they just they're pointing up and mm-hmm. they're tilting and it's mm-hmm. like they've got little lives of their own they're yeah. little robots they, they do kind of come across as sort of like this mechanized thing and then meanwhile the sky is just sort of organically yeah. shifting through the time lapse and he was it was great to have his work included he's he's probably the only sort of legitimate astronomical photographer in the group <laughs> everybody else is coming from a very um, clearly uh, defined kind of art practice yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and it, but it was fantastic to have his work in there as well because it helps to sort of. Um, I was really interested in the technologies that we use to sort of understand space. So mm-hmm. obviously the observatory is perfect for that. And photography is also a technology that we use to sort of understand space as well. Yeah. Um, and I tried to include some historical uh, photographs um, just to kind of help situate it as well. So mm-hmm. um, I think we'll talk about it with Eric's work later, but there are some glass plate negatives and positives from the observatory collection, which was great that they let us use that. And then there's also a big sort of wallpaper image from one of the lunar orbiters. Um, So in 1967, before um, the moon landing, uh, orbiters photographed the surface of the moon, and those photographs were sort of Used to sort of help um, help the uh, help the landing actually happen. Yeah. Um, so that idea of sort of photography, kind of somehow projecting further than humans to begin with, and then we kind of make our way there as well. Mm. And has a practical application. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not just a beautiful aesthetic right, one right. or a thought-provoking intellectual one. And Eric, um, uh, your work is um, it's in that uh, it's one of the largest spaces baker telescope room yeah and in terms of uh, well it's called standard stars the series um of which it's been exhibited elsewhere as well and it's so interesting to see it in this particular space i don't know what it looked like in the other spaces but i'm guessing it might have been a bit different to have it in a gallery versus you know an observatory context it's wildly different yes. yeah yeah it is it is a little bit outdoors too you get a bit of a draft coming through the mm. cracks of the walls and everything it's quite ambient um but in terms of your works um they well it's fascinating really um but let's go to i guess how you got to discover this type of um medium or subject that you utilize in your series and how you've interacted with it because you're um, using uh, or I guess capitalizing on a process that was one of the well it was the key way to actually photograph the stars for centuries. Mm-hmm. Yeah uh, I mean from 1880 to about 1990 the main way of photographing the sky was on these glass plate negatives that was cheap and effective and and there was a big universal, or I should say global, undertaking to map the entire universe. Uh, it was called the carte du ciel. And uh, the plates, they exist all over the world at different sorts of observatories, but the science has essentially gotten their information from them. So for the most part, they just kind of sit in cabinets these days. Mm. So there's this archive out in North Carolina called the Astronomical Photographic Data Archive in the United States. And they're trying to amass all of these plates, basically put them into one central location, scan them, and then make that data available to everyone, amateur and professional astronomers. It's a really noble goal, but it's run by like a five-person nonprofit <laughs> in a small town. Yeah. <laughs> so, and there's only one percent has been scanned so far. Yes. <laughs> I'm probably responsible for some of that during my travels. <laughs> um, yeah, so they're completely overwhelmed. Yale just donated their collection of 200,000 glass plates to them last year. Um, and in order to take care of these materials properly, they need to be stored in climate-controlled, protected environments. And when they're not, well... 
the, the results are on display in the show. And yeah. so that's what my particular interest is in, is these the evidence of the decay of these plates. Yeah, so let's talk about how they have possibly decayed because that's all to do with the process of the glass plates and the is it the emulsion that is used. Right, and a lot of human error. Yeah, and, and that's exactly. What I, that's what I'm interested in. So some of them have been dropped and they're mm. broken and shattered. Some of them, someone spilled something on the plate. I would get all the information from the envelopes of the plates themselves and it's funny how the scientists would kind of blame each other like <laughs> so-and-so bumped the telescope or they would always try and pass the blame on why the image didn't turn out right um, or clouds I, I lots had, of clouds yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> so uh for every beautiful picture of the sky that we see i think it's important to know that there's hundreds of terrible ones yeah <laughs> but they're also beautiful in their own way right they because, are because because they have that uh that human error embedded so that one of the main uh interesting parts of the decay for me is just like the improper storage and so the emulsion starts to peel away from the plate itself and the way it does so is in a number of beautiful patterns mm. um, and they're not collaged or anything I just sort of scan them as is right and, and that that's kind of what's on display at the show yeah because you can in some it's harder to make out than others but you can see the stars in the background in some that have a lot more peeling than others and it has this like mosaic effect really Um, and it's very abstract yes some of them look like abstract paintings yeah they do (laughs) yeah and that's why well I'm I'm particularly um, like appreciate abstraction because I think it really offers something more like allows a viewer to really put themselves inside a work and and really respond in a personal way Um, but also one of the pieces um, that when you walk in it's on the far back left wall Mm -hmm. um, is uh, well, it's NA7997, but it's this... Oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but it, it's like um, it's kind of ripping from the inside, like the sky is being kind of stretched out right. and, and the seam is ripped. And yeah. it's just, wow, like... Yeah, someone had dropped the plate and then they tried to tape it back together. So you can actually <gasps> oh, really? see like the scotch tape along the edges. And so yeah, <laughs> I wondered what that was. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's a kind of a combination of both the emulsion peeling along that crack and then yeah. also the accident of just dropping a plate in the dark room. So. And they've just, you know, lended it great to your work. Yeah, I mean, it creates a whole new image. Yeah, Scientists would see that as like a, a big error, but as an artist, I see that as a huge opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's interesting that the name of that series um, comes from one of the, the envelopes or folders yeah. itself. We think of stars as being like so amazing, but I guess when you're cl- trying to classify billions of stars, there's going to be some that are less amazing. Yeah. And then the, it just falls into this category of standard stars. And I really like that because it brought that human element of, mm. yes, this is an amazing universe and the pictures are gorgeous. But at the same time, this undertaking to map it is very human. And, mm-hmm. and the errors are kind of a way that I felt as a layperson and a non-scientist as a way I could sort of enter in that space and relate to the people who are working on that. Yeah, and it does bring it closer. It's something that is so um, high above and big and, you know, mysterious to a lot of people, maybe not as much to physicists or astronomers, but right. to regular people such as us, um, you know, that when we look up at the sky, we don't see, you know, the human interaction. We have our in- personal interaction, mm-hmm. but, yeah, this does bring it closer in and has a bit of an intimacy to it. Yeah, and I, I really like the observatory uh, itself because it has all this beautiful stained glass inside yeah. the room, which mm-hmm. is really strange. Normally 
normally you wouldn't see that. That's something that I very much associate with churches. So that aura and that idea of having sort of a personal experience with the with the scientific data, I mm. thought was really interesting to have at that specific site. Yeah, and Rebecca, you mentioned that um, that the bell, the observatory lent some of mm-hmm. its um, own plates. There's one that um, I think it's on the back wall to the right, and that you can look through a magnifying glass and see these. That's right. Up close, the stars, yep. and there's a bit of a swirling. Um, one, which looks like it's a black hole or something. It's like you're looking through it and you might almost fall through it. Mm-hmm. That, I find, is so, such a great addition to it because you're engaging with these works on the wall with Eric's work and then you've got... You can kind of peer in really up close to some of these... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it really helps to sort of make the connection between what you're looking at as far as these sort of beautiful, sort of abstract, almost painterly images, mm-hmm. and then seeing that physical print and sort of making that connection, I think is really, um, it's great to be able to do that. And it was a treat that we were able to use those. Um, so they're on light boxes, so they're illuminated from below, and each has a loop or a sort of magnifying glass, so you can actually see the details. And there was, oddly enough, a positive. So typically these would show up as negatives, and so everything looks sort of reversed. It's like a white sky with black dots. Yeah, yeah. But we did have a positive, so you can kind of see that it sort of makes more of a sort of um, connection to how we imagine the sky and how we usually see it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. There are a couple. There's like a negative and a positive. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, And, I mean, looking at, I mean, Eric, with your work and why you picked this, (laughs) as a photographer and an artist, um, you know, utilising a medium and some like a historical process that is now redundant, really, um, I guess... Were you was were there other motivations apart from the human element? Were like were you an ap- appreciating it aesthetically or historically or you know what what motivated you to really engage in a practice that's just so interesting in terms of it's you're not using a camera yourself right. or well it's kind of a camera like a scanner and a lens yeah. and you know you do have an in- engagement with it mm-hmm. but it's not a traditional what we would assume to be just right. a regular stand and shoot. Yeah, and I try to include some photographs that I made on the site. I, yeah. do, I do use a camera. <laughs> but, I mean, my main uh, work as an artist heavily involves archives. Mm. And so this is uh, one instance of me sort of trying to combine my interests of uh photographic technology and scientific archives in this specific place so yeah there's very much the draw of beauty Mm. and the appreciation of the hard work of the scientists Um, but uh, I'm always looking for analogies or ways to sort of bridge that gap between the objective scientific enterprise and the subjective humans yeah (laughs) yeah it's really great um, to see art and science come together in such a beautiful and um, symbiotic way is actually a really nice pairing. Yeah, well, what I like about Eric's work is that oftentimes when art and science come together, 
art is in the service of mm. science and art is what is articulating scientific ideas or discoveries and this is much more of a sort of playful take and um, it's much more open to interpretation and I really appreciate that about this particular project. Yeah, absolutely. And um, to give a reference point, um, well, the the series is up on your website, Eric. Yes. Um, there's also a range of uh, examples from this exhibition on the Ballarat International Photo Biennale website. Um, and that people can also see you speak, Eric, uh, on Thursday at the RMIT to hear more about your practice. Yeah, that lecture is at 4.30. Great. Yep. And um, they, they can find those details on the Biennale website, I they believe. They can. I don't know if the website is updated with the exact location yep. of the lecture at 4.30. So it is at the RMIT Design Hub Lecture Theatre. Mm-hmm. Great. And the other wonderful thing is that uh, even though it opened, at least the whole Biennale opened on Saturday, um, the formal launch of this exhibition is coming up on Saturday. So That's right. So it's this Saturday from four to seven. So there'll be enough time to sort of have enough light and actually see the camera obscura. Uh, and we'll also be doing a outdoor projection of one of the works that uh, unfortunately due to the nature of it I wasn't able to sort of have it playing for the whole duration of the show Um, but it's a three channel video projection that Hilary Wiedemann has done and it's um, it's interesting she uses three different color channels um, and they all overlap so it's interactive in the sense that if you sort of stand in front of the projection your shadow becomes yellow sand and magenta because the uh, the the projected video is in the red, green, and blue channel. So it's you're sort of sort of dealing with color, light physics as science. well. Yes, <laughs> science. <laughs> yeah, um, and that one's well. that one's fun for everybody. Um, I've I saw that work a few years ago in San Francisco, and I fell in love with it. And I was like, I, I need to have this video for this show. So <laughs> that will be up for the launch as well. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Yeah, well, it's there is just something in there for everyone, really, um, not only at this exhibition, but the Biennale, so people can walk through the whole town of Ballarat and practically run into exhibitions everywhere, including right. outside. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's just a great opportunity to get out of the city as well and engage with a um, whole range of photography. Thank you both, Rebecca and Eric, for joining me. It's Thanks really wonderful us. to speak to you. Yeah, yeah. thank you so much. Excellent. Uh, And if you want to head along, it's called A Field Guide to the Stars for the Ballarat International Photo Biennale. Um, The whole Biennale uh, runs for a few weeks, so you have time to check it out. Uh, It runs until the 17th of September. Um, And uh, I've been speaking to the curator, Rebecca Najowski, who is also an artist in this show, uh, and also Eric William Carroll, a US-based photographer and artist himself. Uh, And you can check out one of um, his works I posted up on our Instagram and Facebook so you can see what we've been referencing and talking about uh, in this discussion. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.